This is Pivot Perspectives with Chris O'Byrne, the show that takes you around the world to share interviews with some of the most successful and relevant people on the planet. Hear their stories and get the most important business lessons they've learned on their road to success and get exclusive access on how to implement their success into your life and business. Pivot Perspectives is brought to you by the Strategic Advisor Board and your host, Chris O'Byrne. Joe, welcome and thank you very much for being willing to talk to me. This is, uh, it's a treat for me. It's, it really is, especially after talking with Jason and uh, him, you know, watching your interview with him and how well that went. Uh, uh, it's, it's a pleasure, Chris. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much. Appreciate mm. it. So I'm going to take you back a couple of years. Could you choose one or two stories from your childhood that you feel were important to who you become today? <clears throat> well, I guess the uh, probably, probably the most important uh, uh, memory from childhood is uh, during the war, 1943. I'm eight years old. And uh, just like COVID, people couldn't travel. I mean, you know, World War II, who traveled? No, no streetlights, nothing. So, but, you know, I, uh, I started the war... Uh, four years old, and now I'm eight years old. We're well into the war by now. Um, and I guess when you're brought up like that, you're a kid. What What else? This is this is normal. You know, <clears throat> this is not some, something like, oh, dear, to be afraid of. No, but uh, a lot of experiences. And uh, <clears throat> once we couldn't go anywhere, uh, I was entered into a, a local race because we had local uh, events. Uh, and a little event of an 80, 80 yards race. And uh, I won that race. I, I had one big advantage. My grandfather, he founded J.W. Foster. I know you probably never heard of J.W. Foster and Sons, but uh, in 1904, they had three, he had three world records in his spike track shoes. He invented the spike track shoe. <clears throat> and uh, in the 20s, uh, the guys who, who actually um, immortalized in Chariots of Fire, he actually made their shoes. So we got the, So that's my grandfather, and that's J.W. Foster and Sons. <clears throat> uh, well, that, that, that company, my grandfather died before I was born. He died in 1933. I was born in 1935, some 18 months after. So I am now in 1943. I'm entered into a race, which I win because I'm using my grandfather's spikes. I mean, you can imagine spike track shoes. How many kids had spike track shoes in 1943? One. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> One. I, so I won. I don't know whether that's cheating or a big advantage, but anyway, I won. And I, and I got to collect my prize. And uh, what is my prize? My prize is a dictionary. Um, I'm a kid. I'm eight years old. What's the football? Yes. <laughs> what can I do with a dictionary? I didn't know at the time it was an American dictionary. Um, and, and of course, it, it was Webster's. <clears throat> and uh, I was later to learn that many of the spellings in there are much different. Well, not much different, but they are different than the UK spellings. So that, that's one of my memories. And of course, it, uh, um, it becomes very important later in life. But uh, that's one of my memories. Uh, I think the other memory is uh, of uh, our, where we were in Bolton, near to Manchester. Manchester was a target because of the docks and because of industry. 
So from our upstairs rooms, we could look across eight, ten miles away to Manchester. And uh, when the air raids were on, we had the sirens, so we knew the air raids were there. We used to go into our shelter. Maybe that happened for about six months, and then everybody got tired of going into the shelters because they didn't want to drop bombs on Bolton. Bolton was totally insignificant. <laughs> so we didn't bother going. We we used to look through the bedroom windows and see all the flames. It's red glow coming from Manchester. So those were memorable. And I, I suppose, really, the uh, the air, air raid alarms, when the alarm went off, the sirens went off, and then when the all clear sirens came up. So those are memories which uh, they just stay. So that that's two memories of my growing up. And we didn't have any teachers. They were all in the army. <clears throat> so we had very little education during my first 10 years of life. Mother did a lot, of course. And uh, we did have a few women who were teachers at that time, but you, you can't replace everybody. So we probably went to school, maybe. Well, we didn't even go to school because the school had been taken over uh, during the war for, uh, well, they call them air raid posts. And an air raid post meant that that's what, if anything happened, all the that's where you went if anything happened. So there were safe places of safety. Um, so education was, uh, I suppose, uh, almost non-existent. But, of course, we had books and I had mother, so we did learn, and uh, I could read, so I was okay. So I, I didn't do too bad, but uh, it was probably I was 10 years old before we really got formal education again in school. So you mentioned that the, the American Dictionary was important later in your life. How did that become important to you? Well, we've got to fast forward up to 1960. Uh, in 1958, because my brother and myself, we decided to leave the family business of J.W. Foster because, unfortunately, grandfather had died before I was born. His, uh, his two sons took over, my father and uncle, and they were at war. They were at war with each other. Uh, you'll probably the story of Adi Dassler, Adolf Dassler and Rudolf Dassler, Adi Dassler and uh, Rudy. And, of course, they couldn't get on either. They, you know, they fought. Rudy had the good sense to leave and go and set up Puma. With the Foster family, they just kept feuding. They just kept fighting. So the company was going down. And Jeff and I, my old brother, we, we recognized this and we sort of uh, confronted Father Luke. You know, we, uh, we need to do something. But all he could say, all he could say is, Joe, when I'm gone and your uncle's gone, this company will be yours. You can do what you like with it then. Of course, it was very obvious to Jeff and myself. Look at that. We don't want you to die. We don't want you to go. Number one, we're not looking for you to go. But this company is going to go well before you. The way it's going on, it's going to be dead. Would he listen? No. I, I, I don't know why, whether... He and Uncle had gone through two world wars, and whether they were tired of something or whatever, I'm just happy to have a nice living, just go along. But Adidas had come into the country, Puma had come in, Adidas had taken the soccer market, and we were, Jeff and I were saying, come on, you know, 
uh, during my grandfather's day, he supplied all the major football soccer teams with boots and training shoes. Incredible. There were 90, 90 of these teams. And, and now we were supplying none. We'd lost all that. So, we, you know, Jamie Foster had lost that business. So, Jeff and myself decided we'd, we'd leave. We set up our, our own company. We did. We moved. We got a nice little factory. And we called ourselves Mercury Sports Footwear. And we were happy with that. And we were making money. We were selling shoes and we were making money. <clears throat> and our accountant said, Joe, um, you better register your name. What? What do you mean, register our name? We're Mercury. Ah. You can realise that uh, we were quite naive, quite naive. <laughs> you know, if we'd have set up as J.W. Foster, because both Jeff and myself are J.W. Foster, of course, it's your own name. You can set up. You don't need to do anything like that. But uh, we did, that would be direct competition with the parent company, and we, we didn't want that either. So we'd set up as Mercury. Okay, so what, what, what do we register? Well, if you don't, and somebody else says, well, these, these Mercury shoes seem pretty good. Why don't we make a few? Then you've got a, an argument there. Who owns that name? And you don't want that, so you want to register it. Okay. So he gave him the name of a patent agent to go and see and check out with so I went to see him and said, this is what we need to register this. Okay. He did his checks. He came back within a week and said, uh, okay, Mercury is already pre-registered by British Shoe Corporation. Oh. They're massive. They're big. Uh, oh, what can we do? Well, he said, I've been in touch and uh, they'll sell you the name. Oh, great. Okay. How much do they want? They said, a thousand pounds. In those days, we just set a whole factory up for two hundred and fifty pounds, machinery and everything, a thousand pounds. And the bank wouldn't look at us for that, and we didn't. We we couldn't see how we could uh, repay that. Never mind, sort of have the opportunity to borrow it. Uh, no, we can't do that. Well, he said you can take them to court because they're not using it, and for non-use, you can claim the use of it. I said, how much is that going to cost us then? He said, about a thousand pounds. So I said, look, that's useless. We're not in that game. It was a nice day. I think it was early, early May and the sun was shining. He had his window open and he pointed to a sign, Kodak. I said, what's with Kodak? I said, well, it's their name. They invented it. They made it up. It's, you know, it's not one you pick out of a book or whatever. They made up that name. So... That's the best way to get your name. So if you can bring me a name, make it up, fine. He said, but don't bring me one name. Bring me ten. Already I'm feeling destroyed. Ten names. You know, you sit around the table and just think of one name is usually pretty difficult to get ten. I said, do you realize we have to be in love with this? You know, this is our passion. We, we want to succeed. We've got to love it. But he's a lawyer. He said, look, my job is just to see if you can have names. I went back. We sit around the table. We come up with all sorts of stupid names. But, you know, we had Cougar. We had Falcon. Well, pretty good name. You know, Cougar Sports, Falcon Sport. So we were following down sort of birds of prey, uh, animals. <laughs> ah, great. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Now, this is where the dictionary comes in, because we've been sat around the table, and my dictionary is sat next to me. My Webster's American dictionary is sat there. And 
I like the letter R. For whatever reason, I just like the letter R. So I open my Webster's Dictionary at the letter R, and I start thumbing through. And it's not long before I come across R, E, E, B, O, K, Reebok. What's that? Small South African gazelle. We're a running company. Gazelle. Find me list. That's it. Top of the list. I got the 10 names. We made up all sorts of names. I went back to the paint agent and said, look, these are 10 names, but we want that. We are already in love with Reebok. <laughs> oh, again, it's like, you know, we'll have to go through the process. He went through the process, came back. You know, I think it took him about two weeks to go through this process. And he said, Joe, you've got your wish. The only one that's really clear that we can see that you should have is Reebok. Oh, okay, brilliant. A couple of problems. We've got, uh, phonetically, we've got something called Rebo, and we have something called Railbrook. He said, but we're also the patent agents for Railbrook, so that's no problem. And Rebo is uh, a woman's underwear company. So we don't, <laughs> <laughs> we don't think they will complain. So that's how we got Reebok. Um, but the registrar, in his wisdom, he had a caveat. He said, uh, we can only put you in the B section of, of the register. Well, up to probably a month before that, we didn't even know there was a register. So A section, B section, that's okay. Why is that? Well, if anybody comes to us or we learn of somebody making uh, sports footwear out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. Well, Jeff and I looked at each other and said, no, that'll never happen. <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> that'll never happen. So it became Reebok. And uh, 10 years later, the registrar came back to us and said, we moved you. So the A section of the register, oh, said, that's nice. Why is that? He said, because so many people now, almost everybody now knows that Reebok is a sports brand. And that's how we're Reebok. And that's the oh. <laughs> I love that. So, okay. Along the way, who are some of the most important influences or mentors for you? Well, it's me. I mean, you know, we, uh, mentors and influencers, the, the words may have been in my dictionary, but they were not in common use in business in those days. You know, so today it's everything, influencers, mentors. But um, I, I did have, I, I thought it good to become part of the industry. So we, we went out of our way to uh, go to college and go and meet people. And going to college was a good thing, because, and, and I guess they were our mentors in a way, because they taught us how to make shoes as against what we knew, making athletic shoes. They taught us an awful lot more about that. So uh, and, and within 15 miles of where we were was really a center for uh, some of the footwear industry, mainly slippers and uh, low-price shoes. But there was a guy there called uh, John Willie Johnson, and he had an enormous factory. He was happy to make 6p a pair, 6 pence, which is about 10 cents. So if he made 10 cents on a pair of shoes, he was very happy. So, But he made millions. He made a lot of them. 
<clears throat> and we're now we're now at a time when footwear industry in the UK is in decline because everybody now is going to the Far East. You could get the product less than half the price and a very good quality from the Far East. So uh, <clears throat> around the UK, well, there's two regions. One is the Northampton, Leicester area. The other was Lancashire area where we were. Factories were going out of business, closing down. And so there was an auction, at least one auction every month. And uh, I used to go to the auctions because we didn't have any money. <laughs> the best thing was we could buy a sewing machine for two pounds. Brilliant. That was it. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, and uh, this guy, John Willie Johnson, he used to go. He always used to sit on the front row and he never made a bid for anything. But if, and this happened a lot, the auctioneer went around, he's trying to auction off a whole load of bits and pieces. Nobody bids. Well, the auctioneer would look at John and John would just nod, tick it off. That was it. This intrigued me. This intrigued me because he bought every piece of rubbish that he could think. You know, he, <laughs> he, he was a clearance man, really. He was, you know, everybody else bought machinery and he was a clearance man. So it was one uh, on one occasion. I bought an awful lot of leather, and I got. I'd hired a van. I got in my van. I shouldn't have, but it was too much for my van. And my van is like a speedboat going up the. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the policeman pulls me over. I'm I'm overweight. I had to get weighed. I had to pay the fine and whatever. So I, next time when I'm talking to John, I can tell him about. I don't know if I made any money on that leather I bought because. I got pulled over. <clears throat> so he said, Joe, he said, whatever you buy, look, tell me what it is. My men, after after the sale, they come down and all this clearance stuff, they'll pick everything up and pick yours up as well. Because he was only 15 miles away from where we were. He said, and they'll deliver it to you. Oh, I said, thank you, John. That's fine. Then he suggested, why don't, why don't, instead of us both taking cars down 60, 70 miles of where it is, why don't we go together? I said, that's Fair enough, John. Let's do that. Um, I said, I'll come and pick you up. Well, I think he'd seen my car. So he, <laughs> said, <laughs> he said, you come along and park up and we'll go in my car. So I, I went along and I said, John, what do you, what do, you do with all, all that? I, I didn't say rubbish, but all that stuff that you pick up at, uh, at these sales. Oh, he said, come on. And, and he had a big old mill a warehouse full of this stuff and took me in. He got everything, stuffed crocodiles, even a stuffed bird, <laughs> all sorts of everything you could think of. But he had a machine there that uh, was called a pounding up machine, which takes the wrinkles out. When you're last in something, there's wrinkles, and you just put it on this machine, and it so it's like an hammer. It beats it out. Oh, I said, John, pounding up machine. I said, can I can I rent that off you? Can I buy it off you? And he said, no. Oh, okay. He said, you can have it. Just give it me back when you finish with it. Oh, thank you, John. I'll get somebody to pick it up. No, no, he said, no, you won't. My men will come down, they'll put it, and they'll put it on your production line and they'll fix it up for you. So that was the first. So many times I said, Joe, I've got this machine. Would it be useful for you? And we must have had maybe five or six machines of him. And I'm sure 
that he he thought Joe could do with that machine, and he he probably used to buy it, and specifically then. <laughs> so you know, when you talk about mentors, when you talk about uh, you know people who help you, he he was probably the the one that impressed me most because he, he was such a genuine guy and so so generous with his time and and everything. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago when he was ninety because he was, he was much older than me. I'm only eighty eight, just a junior yet. The young and <laughs> that's right, just young. <clears throat> but you know that was uh, for mentoring. That was where the mentoring came from. You know, he was it was really good and and help. Somebody would help you. Yeah. So why did he buy all that stuff? I, I think he just felt sorry for us because <laughs> <laughs> when we when we were at the auctions and the auctioneer, I'd be, I'd be bidding, and uh, we you know we'd eventually buy something. The auctioneer would say, "Okay, Joe, it's yours. We we know that uh, you've got more guts than money." <laughs> <laughs> So I think he, I think John Johnson uh, took took a bit of a shine to the idea that uh, we were just scraping the barrel. We were at the bottom of everything, and still willing to let's let's go. Let's let's, let's make yes. it. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's good inspiration. Oh, absolutely. So, what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned over the years? The valuable lessons is uh, you've got to build a team. They have to have ownership. They've not got to be saying, me, I, that's not part of team. They've got to be Reebok. And they've, they've got to feel Reebok. So building that team, and you've got to listen to these people. Because you, uh, you know, I, mean, I brought a few things to the company, and you know, the, like the, the silhouettes and the name and the logo. And, but, you know, you, you need people. And you need to build a team. And they need to say, oh, we're Reebok. I'm Reebok. You know, they, they need to be part of. So it's, it's building that team. Egos, oh, I had trouble. I, and if I got an, anybody with an ego, and you, sometimes you don't know their egos there until they, they're working for you, I would I would just invite them to move on. You know, it's, this, this is wrong. We don't want egos. We want people who want to be part of that team. So team building, I, I, I think that's probably the most And being very honest. You know, with with your people, is have you got to be honest? You've got to uh, have integrity. If you have that, I think people trust you. And getting the people to trust you is you're halfway there because if they trust you, like John Willie, he he obviously trusted us, so he wanted to help, and people want to help. So I I think that's so important. And people they ask me what are the three most important things about uh, building and running a company, and I say, well, number one, you got to have fun. If you're not having fun, it's going to be there. And number two, make it more fun. And number three, it's got to be a real hoot. It has to be absolutely tremendously fun. And that way everybody else is having fun. And that way they don't realise they've turned up at 6 o'clock in the morning and they don't realise it's 10 o'clock at night when they're going out. It's like you know, they don't want to go home. They, they, and you're a family. And, uh, and then you build a culture. And we were in we were in the sort of trade where you could pick something up and you could see it. It had uh, it has three dimensions, and a shoe does. A shoe has three dimensions. Apparel, really, if unless it's on somebody, it's only got two dimensions. But a shoe has three dimensions, so it was something that people could relate to very nicely. And uh, and and then we we built a winning culture, 
you know, we, we talk about our successes. We make successes, and you can do in sport, you know, because it's visible. It's not like being an accountant and just getting another new account. It's like, no, this is this is something different. This is building things. So I think that's very important. But certainly listening to people, building a team, a team that wants to work together, you know, th those are so important. So a lot of businesses today are completely online. Yeah. And mine is like that. So right. what do you suggest for building that team culture when nobody is even in the same room. <laughs> like you're asking me something I never had to have a problem with because <laughs> I I didn't, I stepped back before we got computers or smartphones or anybody knew what online was. Oh, and we used to do mail order. We used to sell because we would advertise in magazines and we'd do direct advertising and do direct selling. So in a way, we were sort of doing what's happening today but we were doing it through a different medium. Um, I mean, if you're doing these things, I think the same principles apply, and and that is build your team. I think teams are still so important. Um, and uh, if you can do that and you can create that buzz, again, today, though, you mentioned influencers. Today, influencers are so, so important now. It's a totally different... Uh, I, I, uh, when... When we got into aerobics, that's another story. But uh, Jane Fonda, Jane Fonda actually bought yeah. Reeboks and she wore them on the television and on her, uh, her fitness uh, videos. And that, that was an influence. And she bought them. <laughs> Could you do that today? <laughs> no, 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 that wasn't happening. Today. So, you know, we're in different times and uh, uh, I'm spending time people today. I'm with a guy. In fact, we're living in, uh, we're here in Fort Lauderdale in one of his properties, and he's just written a book, which is Start, Scale, Exit, Repeat. It's a brilliant book. It's big, it's heavy, but brilliant. So, yeah, he's a, and uh, he, he's saying, oh, I learned an awful lot from you, Joe. I said, yeah, but, you know, and we we we're doing this because we've been doing uh, interviews at universities, and the question is, what was your exit plan? Exit plan? We didn't have an exit plan. We just wanted to earn a living. We just wanted to be successful. So, entrepreneur, am I an entrepreneur or am I a brand builder? Because we built a brand, and I think there's a slight. You need to be an entrepreneur to build a brand, but not. As uh, Colin is, Colin is a serial entrepreneur. And today, that's what is happening. People are happy to sort of do something, make take some money, put it on the table, start again. And uh, so it's it's like, it's a lot different. And certainly over here in America, yeah. They, I mean, I love it. The, the, the guys, they, they go in there and they'll, they'll sell something for 30 million. And you know, you've got 30 million. Oh, do you need a billion? <laughs> to be on Musk or whatever, yeah. I was, but that becomes uh, it becomes addictive, you know. The idea, of, yeah, we can start this, and we know we can scale it here. Like, to me, it was building a business. Now it's scaling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, was it? We we used to change direction, which we did. We went to aerobics. Uh, now it's pivoting. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> so many of you think nothing's changed. The language has changed. Just, yeah. The way you do things have slightly changed. But basically what it is about people and it's about ideas uh, and, and it's about making your, making your brand, giving it some credibility. If you can give your brand credibility, for us it was gold medals. That's, you know, that influenced people. Or uh, you know, if you supply a soccer team, you know, these are the sort of things that influence in the sports brands. In, in others, then uh, it, I think it's still the same. What you have to do is to find out how do people uh, get to know my brand and how do people want to buy my brand. And I can go back to 1895. My grandfather set up his company and he invented the spike running shoe. By 1904, he'd given his shoes to people and one was Alf Shrub. And Alf Shrub won three, broke three world records in one race in Glasgow. Three world records. And from then on, it is the influences. Who, who He used to give his shoes to uh, uh, commentators, to people who uh, wrote the articles and, you know, try my shoes. And then they write an article, these are wonderful shoes, these are the best shoes. And he used to advertise. And one of the adverts, we picked this up because when we started to grow, uh, scale, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We decided to look back into the history of J.D.B. Foster, my grandfather. And we were, because we were local to where he started his business, uh, he used to advertise in the local newspapers and things like that. And one of the adverts we found was, if you don't believe that uh, Foster's spikes are the best you've ever worn, we'll give you £100. Now, if you can think, in the early 20th century, in 1905 to 1910, £100 that must be like ten thousand pounds today, because it's yes. an incredible amount of money in those days. But uh, he was able to he advertise like that, and uh, he used to advertise again. Uh, our shoes are worn by, and he used to list down all the top runners who won uh, gold medals and what he used to. So he, he he knew how to influence, and and I think influencing okay, it's changed slightly now. It's a bit more open. You've got to pay for this. As against just give a product, but it but it's it's a way of and you've got to work out figure out which way do I how do I get the influence into my business. That is an excellent point, and it's interesting that it really hasn't changed much over the years. Just the method. <laughs> so, what is something in business that most people don't see? So, I'm talking about business people, and we get all excited, and we're starting out, and we're just getting going. What is it we fail to see at that point? I think a lot of people just look at a business and uh, don't rec- don't realize or, or don't take into consideration, am I going to enjoy this? Is it going to be a fun thing to do? Because if it isn't, you, you're likely to fail. You know, you, you, you've got to be... 24-7. It's got to be in your mind. It's got to be in and, and with the people. So, you know, I, I think today, certainly, if, if you're just thinking, well, I can uh, I, I can start, I can scale, I can exit, I can repeat. But how many of those can you love? And will you be successful unless you have that mentality? And I think the guy that we're staying with, I think he has that mentality. He's, that, that is his fun. His fun is not the product. 
as fun as the game. Yes. And <laughs> and, I, and I think you have to decide what is going to be your fun. Is it uh, building something for a long time? You know, we built a business with Reebok. And if you take if you take the family back, you've got to go back to my grandfather in 1895, and here we are now in 2023. You know, it's 128 years, is that something like that? So that's a that's a long time. And even with Reebok, Reebok is now unlike it's coming back. It was bought by Adidas, um, but Adidas were really interested in the assets rather than in in actually growing or scaling Reebok. And they took some assets and put it into Adidas. Um, but Reebok persisted and eventually it's been sold to ABG two years ago. And ABG, well, the, the problem with Adidas is that uh, they didn't run them as independent companies. They pushed everything into one. So all the offices, the Reebok was in the Adidas office, everything that Adidas did, Reebok was in there. So separating that is like, you know, you've almost got to get, get a surgeon in there to cut it. Yes. And uh, so that's taken a couple of years. But uh, ABG, uh, their strength is they've got massive, massive distribution globally. Mm. So all they did was to make arrangements with different people. And we were in India, Julia and I were, were in India earlier this year, and we met up with a new team for India. And they have a license for 40 years. Yeah, I mean, that's a commitment. But that, wow. that's, yeah, that's the way ABG work. You know, they work on this. We've got some good partners. Now, you can have this. So ABG paid $2.5 billion for a company that was supposed to be worth. I mean, originally it was sold for $3.6 billion. Uh, but when Adidas were going to sell it, people said, well, at the best, a billion. At the best, a billion now. But ABG paid two and a half billion. Reason? Yeah. And this is this is a good reason, because uh, so Jamie Salter, who is the CEO, he's he he also has the, the brand for, for Shaquille O'Neal. He has his brand. But, uh -huh. but Shaq is also 15% of ABG. And uh, it's just quoted that every time Shaq comes to see me, the first thing he talks about is Reebok. Why don't we buy Reebok? And the last thing before he's going through the door, the last thing he talks about is Reebok. Are we going to buy Reebok? So we bought Reebok. <laughs> and, and, and the good thing about that is Shaq wanted it. Now, that's good. It's like you talk about, you know, what in a business, you've got to want it. You yes. really want it. It's no good to say, well, we can make something out of this. No, you've got to want it. Because that way you'll spend that extra little bit of time, that little bit of thinking, that little bit. Yeah. Even if it's not money, you'll spend, you'll, you'll make people believe you. This is going to be it. And, and if people believe you, they trust you. They, and then you've got to make sure that you, you do that right. But you know, self, if you can believe in it yourself, other people will believe. As if you, if you don't believe, it's going to be hard to sell something that you don't believe in yourself. So uh, having Shaq there, he, he is now, and I think they've just appointed Shaq as the president of basketball. The, um, and Reebok are going back into basketball. Big way. Big way. And and I love that because, uh, and and he's also said, uh, yeah, we're right now we think we're number three, but we're going to head for number one. <laughs> yeah. Nike, Nike are way above that, but 
if you don't dream that big, you never achieve it. You, you've yes. got, yeah, you're not got to aim for number three. You've got to aim for number one, and yeah, you know, and keep on pushing because that way, that way you can achieve it. And it's, it's the same with any business. Where do you want to be? How, you know, how successful do you want to be? If success is the amount of money I can make, well, that's one thing. People can live with that, and they, in certain industries, you can you can do that. I think in the sports good industry, though, you've got to be in love with it. You've got to have something more. And that probably applies to a few industries where there's a visibility of that industry, where it, where it is visible. So, uh, no, I think I think Reebok, fortunately, uh, are back on a, a winning track again now. And uh, it's fabulous. We love it. I mean, we've been, uh, this, this year, Julie and I have been to Australia, Singapore, um, Dubai, India, uh, just meeting the Reebok teams. And previously, oh, we've been to Panama and we've been to Canada and met up with the Reebok teams there. And the, the one thing that, uh, I mean, okay, I'm not involved in Reebok, but I'm the founder. And the one person they can't change is a founder, no matter how familiar. Yeah. <laughs> you, you change CEO or CFO, you can change all the other people, but you can't You can't find a new founder. So, uh, sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it carries a lot of weight. Uh, so along the way, what, what's one of those aha moments you had where you thought in business, oh, this is how it really works. I never would have known that. And it wasn't until you reached a, a certain level in your development that you were able to look back and say, okay, now I get it. Uh, well, I, I, I guess really it's a question of um, we keep on taking one step just because, you know, we, we want to grow our business in those days or scale it. We want to see how far we can take it. And, uh, and, and I think that really, okay, it was fantastic when we actually broke into the American market. After, after me spending 11 years going to the NSGA and trying to, and lots of failures, oh, failed that many times. You think, well, okay, but we succeeded because we got the into Runner's World. We got ratings, five-star ratings for three of our shoes. That was a that was a great attraction. That sucked us into the market then because people read about this. Oh, Reebok was my pair of Reebok. So you know, that, was, that was a moment of, wow, yes, now we know what, you know, what's the influence? Five stars are definitely a big influence. Uh, but really what it was about is, you know, we, on we know it, we were looking for white space all the time because the, you got big guys like Nike, Adidas, Puma, they're around you and they're, they're sucking out the, the best of everything because they're big, they, they can put the money behind it. Um, so we look for the white space was, what, what are they now? You know, Local to us and in the UK, the running business, the athletics, track and field, we, we could start to own that, mainly because the three A's produced a handbook. And in that handbook, every club was affiliated to the three A's, every club, and about 300 clubs. And I had the name and address of every secretary. So all I had to do was to contact all these people and put, give them an agency. They become an agent for Reebok. So I, I ended up with about 250 agents. And so we actually owned that market. We just we just owned that market. We said, well, okay, now we own this market. Where do we go? Where's the white space? Where, where, is the, where is the space for us to move? 
And in in the UK, there's a, a sport, it's rugby, but it's rugby league. And rugby league is quite specific to the north of England. So we could go in there again. I, I could knock on somebody's door. I didn't need to do much more than knock on somebody's door. Go, go in, give a couple of pairs of boots and whatever. So we started all these this white space. And uh, it was when we got to America, I said, I've gone to America. I said, that wasn't white space. That was a bigger market. It's like, what do you do? How do you, how do you, how do you expand your business? How do you scale it? Do you put more product on the market? Do you move from running in athletics into football, soccer? Soccer was owned by Adidas. Now, what do you move into? Do you do that or do you expand the territory? So instead of just selling in the UK, and, and of course, that being the UK, we, the UK has a Commonwealth. So Canada, we already had Canada, New Zealand, Australia, yeah, India, with a lot of those we're, we're still selling to. So that was a, a bit of a sort of um, a white space for us because they all spoke English and they all wanted to buy English. So that was good. Getting into America, I know I'd been dealing with a guy, even at Foster, I'd been dealing with a guy called Frank Ryan. Frank Ryan was uh, head coach with Bob G and Jack at Yale University. But he was he was getting a bit older now, so he didn't really want to get involved with Reebok. But uh, I, I knew that in the, every, every college, every uh, university has coach. And coach is king. He's top of the tree. That's it. And he can go there on a sports scholarship. So I knew that was, if I could get into America, uh, I didn't realize it would take me 11 years. But, but wow. it's, yeah, it's a big market. And how do you influence such a big market? But we got in. We got in with running. And uh, um, we'd, we had grown there. We became a $9 million business. And then that white space appeared, aerobics. Mm. We were not known by many people. But a $9 million business, people don't know you. We were a very small minnow in this big pond of running in those days. And then we hit on aerobics. It was our tech rep, our tech rep in uh, in Los Angeles, who uh, his wife is coming back from these classes, and she's uh, full of it. It's wonderful. And he said, Frankie, Frankie, you do it. Oh, we're doing exercise to music. Really? What's that? It's called aerobics. Oh, what? what's aerobics? Well, what's it? He went down to, to the next class and lesson and he looked it over. Half the girls were wearing sneakers. We, we think they were New Balance. The instructor was wearing the same sneaker. The other half of the class, they were not wearing any sneakers, no, no footwear. And it struck him, why don't we make a special shoe just for aerobics? That was white space. And he wanted it made out of glove leather, just simple white and by that time, we had the Union Jack on the side. And that itself is a different story because uh, shortly after I, I got Paul Fireman on as uh, uh, my, my USA distributor, he was going to have the USA. And we had, uh, we had the Road Star, which was a star as our logo, which was great. But Paul said, uh, it looks a bit like the Union Jack. And yeah, it does indeed. He said, look, Joey said, it's going to cost us an awful lot of money to get everybody in America to recognize a road star. Can we use the Union Jack? Because he said, everybody in America knows the Union Jack. Oh, that surprised me a bit, but okay. I said, well, 
they'll kill us in the UK if we put the Union Jack on because these shoes are made in the Far East. I said, but I'm willing to suffer that if you think this is going to be a good idea. <laughs> and so we put the Union Jack on. So you got a Union Jack on each shoe and then the box, the lid of the box was a Union Jack. So with all these Union Jacks. And in those early days, we didn't have uh, much point of sale stuff for the retailer. So the retailer used to stack the boxes in a pyramid and put a shoe on each of the boxes that went up there. And that caught on. That caught on. So almost every independent retailer, a lot of independents, knows it, they all had this pyramid of Reebok boxes. So the Union Jack there was just... Yeah, we, we almost did get killed in the UK. We, we got about... <laughs> we, we, had, we had about a dozen uh, court cases... Uh, they took us to court, yeah, but, you know, you can't do this, you know, these are not made. But we said, look, they're designed in the UK. We get a royalty on every shoe. Why can't we use the Union Jack? We have uh, we have British Airways flying Boeings with the Union Jack on the tail. Yeah, we put all, all sorts of And they used to fine us one pound because we were, we were guilty, but one pound, that's all. <laughs> Eventually, we we came to an agreement with the uh, I don't know what to call them now, but with this group, and uh, and I think we paid something like five thousand to stop it. <laughs> oh so my goodness! It just got stopped, and even though on the side of every shoe we had a big, big hang hang tag made in Korea. <laughs> oh, it's so funny! Yeah, yeah made in South Korea. Ah. But it worked in America. It worked, and uh, okay, so we got this nice, uh, this nice glove leather shoe. I didn't know at the time that uh, Aunt Helen had asked for this shoe in glove leather because, to me, you don't make a shoe out of glove leather. <laughs> you make gloves out of glove leather because, yeah. just like a piece of paper, you can tear it. It just it's that easy, and of course, that's what happened. The shoe started falling apart. Uh, had we been in any other country or even in any other place than Los Angeles, USA, we would we would have been dumped. We would have been thrown out. No. But the girls love them. They love them that much. They didn't care if they only lasted four weeks and went out and bought another pair. Oh no. Oh, <laughs> but then and I'm saying, Well, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, they're tearing apart. Okay, you can't do that. So what they did to strengthen it, they lined it with nylon. That gives it more strength, okay. So I said, look, you can't do that, guys, because you're stopping it breathing. The benefits of your leather is it, it breathes. So what did they do? And this is the lesson that marketing beats manufacturing every time. They punched holes in the front to allow it to breathe. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so that was a great lesson for me in marketing, yes. And they got away with the soft leather. In fact, that's the one thing in America that's uh, changed Reebok, is that Reebok were responsible for the nice soft leather, which now everybody uses a soft leather. You don't have to break them in. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, so many shoes uh, previous to that, uh, by the time you got broken in sort of thing, they're almost worn out. <laughs> and we suffered so much. Uh, I remember that, uh, again, I, this was one of the agencies, uh, I think it was Saul Gold, I don't remember his, uh, his agency, but they put the advert in because we moved into tennis and these nice soft shoes. 
And uh, the advert was, if you don't believe that uh, Reebok tennis shoes are the best shoes we've ever worn, it's a bit like my grandfather's, isn't it? It's the best mm-hmm. shoes we've ever worn. Um, we'll replace your shoes and give you a can of balls. So the straight line was Reebok puts its balls on the line. <laughs> <laughs> That was, <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. Which is great. So, and, and I think, you know, we talk about a brand. A brand should have fun, should be able to see the funny side and, and enjoy life. So, yeah. But that, that was the big white space that took us from 9 million to 900 million in four years. So that was the big thing. We were, we were talking about what was big. And the, that was huge. Yeah. <laughs> it was jank. Well, we overtook Adidas and we overtook Nike at that time. We became number one in the late 1980s. Just from picking the right white space. That's right. Just from, and not being not being worried about it. So we, we yeah. came from being a running company to being a woman's company. All mm. of us were a woman's company. And the decision was to make the aerobic shoe on a, a woman's last, just in women's sizes. So once they started to rocket, all the men were saying, can we have something like this? Can we have a piece of this? So eventually we went into uh, different models, not just aerobics, I think uh, was for training and things like that. And then it goes, when we, when we got bigger, when we got that big, we could move into other sports. We could move into basketball, uh, football, and uh, I don't know how much we got into baseball, whether we did or not, but we got we got into the... I don't think we particularly worried too much about cleated sports, but uh, there was a basketball and tennis, they were the two where you could wear that same shoe on the street. Yes, yeah, yeah. Started the whole sneaker revolution. Oh, absolutely, yeah, the airports. I know there's a quote from, uh, I think it was Rob Strasser, who, who worked at that time for Nike, and he said, oh, we're done. Because every time we went to the airport, it's all these Reeboks around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what are some parting words of wisdom that you have? I think the parting words of uh, anything, I don't know whether it's wisdom or not, but certainly <laughs> they've said you, you've got to have fun, you've got to create teams. And, uh, you know, you, the important thing also is, is is to like people and to listen. You know, so listen to people. There's so many people out there, many more ideas than you have. I stepped back at 55 and people said, why? You're young. I said, look, uh, this is a very young sport. People coming in now, people who are, who are sort of late teens, up to 30 years old, they've got different ideas than I have. We need those. We need the new ideas. Even if they fail, you'd still need the ideas. You still need to do the change. So it'd be, definitely be be open for uh, other people's ideas and listen. Yeah, that's the best thing I can say to people. And okay, take the risks. They are calculated, and if you're wrong, change. It's as simple as that. But uh, you know, the worst thing you can do is not make a decision. Whichever way you go, you've got to make that decision. And I say, if it's wrong, and same with people who work for you, don't let them come to you every time, scared of the fact that they, they don't, they're scared of what you might say if they make the wrong decision. No, you invite them to make the wrong decisions. Just 
take us into a different place. Take us somewhere different. I know. He brought aerobics. Okay, his decision was to do it in club leather. It was wrong, but you could you could change it. You know, and eventually, event, eventually, we got something more like a clothing leather, which was more more substance to it. Because club leather is only one millimeter, one millimeter. When you start working on it, that is like so you end up with 0.7 of a millimeter thickness. And yeah, so, yeah, that goes wrong. But you know, it, I would have never thought using glove leather. So we would probably never got to a soft leather. So, yeah. And, and that's because you invite people to do. And uh, I just said, Paul Feynman, look, guy, look, Paul, don't ever learn how to make shoes. Don't. <laughs> because that will take away the ability to think differently. Because you'll always think like a shoemaker. It has to have this, it has to have that. Of the other, and you, you'll start making shoes like everybody else. You know, you, you've got to have that willingness to to change and think. Okay, like I say, the glove leather was wrong because uh, it wasn't strong enough. But you can work on it and work on the idea to get something that does work. Yeah, yeah. So that's great advice. Thank you. Yeah, and thank great. you for talking to me today. This Thanks. is. It's an absolute pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it very much. Good. Good. And I enjoyed it too. It's great. I get, of, I get a lot of chances to talk about Reebok, and I can never I can never tire of that because again it's your passion. Passion. Absolutely. It's a passion. And that's another thing. Make sure you've got a passion for what you're doing. That you really love it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to Pivot Perspectives with your host, Chris O'Byrne. Please leave your feedback and visit strategicadvisorboard.com to get the latest and greatest business advice on the planet. Follow us on social media for updates, and we will see you on the next episode.